Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. All right, well, to start, I, I want you to think about a time in your life when you felt the frustration of not getting recognition that you deserved, okay? Think about a time in your life when you felt the frustration of not getting the recognition that you deserved. So maybe it was something, some work that you did that was deserving of recognition. Maybe it was some, something significant that you accomplished in your life and there was no recognition. So when you aren't recognized in a way that something you've done warrants, it's very frustrating and it can be extremely hurtful as well. So, so think about one of those times in your life when you did not get the recognition that you deserved, or maybe even worse, maybe the recognition you deserved went to somebody else. And so I've got one experience of this that has stuck with me for the vast majority of my life. My senior year of high school, I started to be way more involved in the spiritual life of the small private Christian school uh, that I attended throughout high school. And up to that point, I'd, I'd gone to chapel because we didn't really have a choice. Uh, we were forced to go to chapel, and so I'd done that, but my, I hadn't really done anything outside of sports and school and go to chapel, and my senior year, a lot of that really started to change. Uh, I went to Haiti with uh, classmates to work at a rural hospital for a week. I began to lead worship in chapel and started to uh, attend and serve in our student-led prayer meeting, and so this was a pretty sizable and obvious shift that was taking place in my life. And at the end of every single year, our administration gave out awards at our annual banquet. And so my senior year, I remember my science teacher, Mr. Harris, walking up to the podium to give out the spiritual leadership award. And as soon as he started talking and describing who had won the award that year, I immediately was like, oh my gosh, I think, I think he's talking about me. And so he, he just kept going on and on about uh, all of these uh, ways that I'd served and these changes that he had seen in me, and then came the big moment. Mr. Harris says, this year's Spiritual Leadership Award goes to Ryan Hughley. And I could not, I mean, I was like, I was still so, so shocked in that moment. And so I stood up, I remember it clear as day, I walked up to the podium, I shook Mr. Harris's hand, and my, I was just like so honored and humbled and surprised to have won. And so I just felt so amazing in that moment. And then all of my happiness and good feelings disappeared in one moment. When I looked down at the award, and it did not say Ryan Hughley, it said Brian Grote, which was another kid in my class. You can laugh, but that just means that you're sick. Because I... I remember standing, like just imagine that I'm standing in front of almost my entire school, all of my teachers, a bunch of parents were there, and I'm being applauded in, for my recognition with this great award, and then I have to be the one 
to awkwardly announce to the whole room, I had not won, but the award went to Brian Groh. It was one of the most humiliating moments of my whole life, and I'm glad it brings you joy. I just wish someone at some point would have told me like, hey, all these horrible, embarrassing things that happened to you, it's all going to be good sermon fodder someday, so just embrace it. So I remember Mr. Harris, he tried so hard to cover it, and he was like, well, I just want everyone to know I think Ryan should have won it, and then I'm thinking like, poor Brian Grote, because he knows Mr. Harris doesn't think he should have got it. So it was just like, it was, it was humiliating, it was hurtful, and above all, it was frustrating. See, the reason that it's so frustrating when we don't get recognition we deserve is that it, in truth, it is inherently unjust. In Romans chapter 13, verse 7, Paul says to pay respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. So if recognition is in fact deserved, but it's not given, that is unjust, unjust. And so frustration is an expression of anger. And you know, anger is the emotion that we feel in response to injustice. And so what I want to do for the next at least two weeks, I think, is I want to talk about three more women in Scripture who I believe have not received the recognition that they deserve. And, and I think I can prove it to the majority of us in just a couple of seconds. By a show of hands, how many of you are like super aware of Phoebe's story? Not the blonde-haired hippie from Friends, okay? <clears throat> Phoebe from the Bible, okay? Maybe one of us. All right, how many of you are super familiar with the story of Priscilla? Same person. One person really knows his women in the scriptures. How about this? How many of you know Junia? Nobody knows that name. Now, here's, here's the thing about that. All three of these women made significant leadership investments in the early church, and the vast majority of us have never even heard their names. And so this morning, we're going to start trying to award them the recognition that they deserve. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, do me a favor and open to Romans chapter 16. It's the last chapter of Romans. We're going to be this week in the first two verses. This morning, I want to talk about Phoebe the faithful. And so if you're not uh, familiar with Romans 16, it's the last chapter in Romans, and the majority of Romans 16 is Paul writing to or about specific people who are either living and a, and a part of the church churches in Rome or who had been involved in the ministry of bringing this letter to these churches. And so throughout Romans 16, Paul actually greets or speaks to 26 different people, nine of which are women, uh, who are all involved in the, some three to five household churches that existed in Rome at that time. And so we're going to start with these first two verses. So look with me, Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church at Sincrea. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. So we only have these two verses, but the truth is in these verses, we learn a lot about the ways in which Phoebe uh, modeled and practiced faithfulness to Jesus in her life. I want to point out three for us this morning. The first one is this. Phoebe was a faithful leader. 
Phoebe was a faithful leader. Paul refers to her as a servant of the church in Synchrea, which was a port city of Corinth in the south in south central Greece. Now, the English word uh, that we translate here as servant comes from a Greek word, which is the same Greek word from which we get the term deacon, which was and remains an office of leadership within the local church. Now, the challenge is there's no clear job description in the New Testament for what deacons are supposed to do. So the truth is she could have led in a great many ways. Some scholars even believe that she could have been the primary leader of that church, similar to the way that I lead our church. Unfortunately, we have too little evidence to know exactly what her specific leadership role was, though Paul's definitely going to give us at least uh, one that we'll look at in just a second. But first, I I want you to just sit for a second and to consider the specific nature of the leadership that's meant to exist in the local church. There's a a reason that Paul consistently referred both to himself and to other early church leaders as servants. I I don't know what everyone's experience with church leadership has been in the past, And I don't know how closely we all pay attention to uh, what is happening in the Christian church at large when it comes to leadership, but I'm heartbroken to report that there's often a severe lack of health and a disturbing amount of dysfunction and dominance and abuse. I've personally seen it. I've been on the receiving end of it, as have many of you. So clearly, The responsibility for these failures falls on the shoulders of the leaders who have failed to serve like Christ. And I also think that you and I have an opportunity to assume greater responsibility in what we expect from our leaders. And what I mean by that is so many of us have fallen prey to this very American value system that looks for charisma over character. And so as a result, we often overlook significant red flags in a leader's life if they are gifted, creative, and they can fill a room. Yet the New Testament in general, and Jesus in particular, never, ever does that. The consistent emphasis in the New Testament when it pertains to leadership is on Christ-like character. And so what we look for in our leaders is character. And to be clear, that doesn't mean perfect character, okay? I don't want to like preach my way out of a job this morning, but it does mean that what we look for first in any potential leader, or should you leave Ridgeline and end up at another church at some point, it does mean that what we look for first is a trajectory in a person's life that is set toward godliness, that we are growing in that direction. The reality is we are all in process, right? And I don't mean to to burst your hopeful bubble, but you're always going to be in process, which means that we should be very patient when we see shortcoming and sin in our own lives and in other people's lives. We're all always in process. So we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for a pattern, a pattern of leaders who humble themselves when they're wrong a pattern of leaders who live in the open with other people, who sit with God and seek his transforming presence. This is the type of leader that Jesus is after. And this is the type of leader that Phoebe proved herself to be. Uh, The second thing, though, that we learn about Phoebe is that she was a faithful benefactor. I love this part. 
Phoebe was a faithful benefactor. Notice again that Paul uses this term in verse two, uh, benefactor, to describe her, which means that she would have been of considerable wealth and she had a pattern of investing her wealth into ministry in these churches. So Phoebe generously helped provide for ministry. Paul says that she had even helped to provide for his own ministry. And at Ridgeline, man, we, we have seen and we continue to see expressions of this type of service. We have people in our own church, some of the people are even in the room right now, but we also have people outside of our church who have given sizable sums of money to help our church get planted, to get up and out of the ground, and to help our church continue to thrive. And there's one, uh, I could tell tons of stories about it, but there's one obvious example that I think will forever be etched in my mind, specifically because of how critical the timing was on the whole thing. So just before we moved here uh, to Salt Lake City, uh, literally, I think it was like maybe a week or two before we left, I had lunch with a man who uh, I knew a little bit. We weren't like besties or anything like that, but we were, we were, I had lunch with him a couple times. And so he owns a very successful company uh, in North Carolina. And as we finished up our lunch, he, he told me to reach out to him whenever we hit some kind of wall out here in Salt Lake in case he had the ability to be able to help. So fast forward a few months and we were living here in Salt Lake and we'd started to build a few relationships and I knew that we needed to get some space for us to begin gathering in because our like 900 square foot apartment was not gonna cut it. And so uh, in God's providence, I found this space down on 2100 South called the Art Factory. And so that's where we had hoped to be able to, to start meeting. The challenge was, we, it was, there was like 15 of us and my kids weren't tithing yet because they're selfish and so, we were just like, things were pretty tight for us. We were not in a position to be able to uh, live with the stress of just hoping that every single month the church would continue to grow and that people would give so that we would be able to afford this space for us to be able to gather. And so I remember the Saturday morning, I sat down at my computer about 7 a.m. and I typed this email to this friend. And I explained that we'd found this space and I explained the situation that we were in. And I was in no way expecting him to help with the, the total sum, but I was like, you know, we, we're just trying to raise the like sixty dollars to $70,000 to be able to cover all of our operating expenses in this space for at least the first year. And I hit send. And I think it was exactly 23 minutes later that I got an email back from him. And he was like, hey, I got your email, and I want you to know that God spoke to me before you sent it, and I've already decided to give you $100,000 to help get the church started, which was great because it was so much more money again than my kids were giving at the time. So it was really, really critical timing because <laughs> things, I can't overstress, things were tight. But listen, that's the way, that's the very way that Phoebe served Jesus in these churches. And the reality is Ridgeline just flat out would not exist without a few people's willingness to give in sizable ways like this. And again, some of those people are here with us this morning. And, and, and while we may not all be people that God has blessed with what we might call considerable wealth that enables us to be benefactors, the truth is God has entrusted something to all of us. And investing into what God is doing here at Ridgeline is one of the most significant ways that we can all serve Jesus together. Now, there are streams of Christianity that prescribe a specific percentage that people are supposed to give. But you know, the reality is the New Testament never really does that. 
And the reason that the New Testament never really does that is that, like, especially for Jewish people who were going to convert to Christianity, you know, it was customary for first century Jews to give upwards of 25% of their income into ministry in various fashions and forms. And so as a result, there was never really a need for anyone to prescribe a specific amount in the New Testament because they already had such patterns of generosity. We don't have that in the same ways. But what we do have is over and over again, Jesus, you know, Jesus probably taught about 25% of the time that Jesus is teaching, he's talking about the subject of money. And so it's an important, as, as much as it's not our favorite subject often to hear about or to teach about, it's something Jesus obviously knew was very, very important. And so what he stresses over and over throughout his teaching and what is stressed throughout the New Testament was sacrificial generosity that that would be our practice, that that would be what marks us as followers of Jesus, that we would practice sacrificial generosity. So the percentage that we all give is going to differ, and it should, because what God's really looking for from us is sacrificial generosity. So for our family, that that has meant that just for us personally, that 10% is a great floor, but it's an insufficient ceiling. And by that I mean, we have always practiced in our family, giving at least 10% of what God gives us to our local church, wherever we've been serving. But at times he's enabled us to do more, to go above and beyond that. And so when we can, we do. And I don't say any of that to, to brag. I want you to know that I'm, I'm never preaching anything that by God's grace, we're not working to practice in our own lives. And some of you give far more than that. And so I, uh, I think Phoebe knew that everything she was given to her by God was given to her to steward for his glory and the good of his kingdom. And so she generously invested in ministry of the church, and each of us has an opportunity to do the same. And it's one of the best ways that we can all help sustain our church as we continue to come out of this difficult season when so many people are transitioning between churches and we've been in COVID and online only, and it's been such a strange season for everyone, including we as a church. And so we can help sustain us through that season as we all commit to practicing this sacrificial generosity modeled for us by Phoebe and called from us from Jesus. So finally, I think most significantly as well, the third thing that we see about Phoebe here is that Phoebe was a faithful expositor. Phoebe was a faithful expositor. These two verses, what's happening in them is that Paul is commending Phoebe to the churches at Rome because they don't know her. Now, this was very common practice at this time. Travelers like Phoebe were often dependent on the hospitality of strangers. So what Paul's doing here, in a sense, is like vouching for her, thus authenticating her and authenticating this letter that he had given to her. And and more important to note, I think, is that Phoebe would have been the carrier of this letter, which meant she also would have been the reader and the explainer of the letter. So remember, these early years during which the Christian church was expanding in the first century, they were way more messy than what we tend to recognize. They didn't have, and sometimes we just totally overlook this, but you know, they they didn't have the finished scriptures neatly bound into Bibles from which they could read, from which they could study, and from which they could teach to their heart's content. Instead, they were this like beautifully diverse 
but chaotic and messy mixture of people who were converting from Judaism and from paganism. And so God used people like the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write these letters to these early churches that now serve as our scriptures today. So what happened is Paul wrote this letter to the churches at Rome. He gave that letter to Phoebe, who then took it to Rome. Now the cultural practice of that time was such that whoever delivered the letter would also read that letter to the recipients and then sit and answer recipients' questions that they had in follow-up to it. So it was about the closest thing that existed in these first churches to what I do every single Sunday. I read a text, and then I try to help us understand it and to apply it, and then we do text message Q&A, which they didn't have, but most of you are so quiet, I don't think you'd ever ask questions if I made you do it out loud. So this was a very similar process that was taking place then, and that's the heart of being an expositor, to exposit just simply means to explain. And so I don't want you to miss this. Paul trusted Phoebe so much that he entrusted her with the delivery, the reading, and the explaining of his most complex and challenging letter. Like, have you read Romans? Even Peter was like, Paul says some confusing stuff. And he spent time with Jesus. He helped write Bible, but even he was like, Paul is confusing. And Romans is like his most significant letter that he wrote. And he entrusted that to Phoebe. And she got to help exposit this in these early churches. Now, if you're like me and you're most familiar with a stream of Christianity that does not create space and empower women to do what we call preaching, I think it's very important that we stop and that we consider this for a second. Because doesn't doesn't Paul's commendation of Phoebe seem to pose a problem for restricting women from teaching? Like, like you might even think, well, okay, well, well how, how do I reconcile? How do I reconcile what Paul seems to empower with Phoebe, what he seems to empower her to do here, with what he writes in 1 Timothy 2? Because in 1 Timothy 2, one of the most controversial and uncomfortable texts in our culture, in that text, Paul writes this, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I mean, you tweet that, that's a good way to get canceled in our culture, right? If not killed, like that's, them's fighting words. He says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. (laughs) I just kind of want to sit in the awkwardness of this for a second. (laughs) For some reason, I thrive on it. So listen, This is an example of what I would argue are two common misconceptions that people have about the Bible. The first is that it's anti-women. The second misconception is that the Bible contradicts itself. But is that what's really happening here? Is what Paul says in 1 Timothy actually meant to silence all women for all time? And is it in conflict with the manner that he empowers Phoebe and other women in the early church? I would say no. And I get there by answering two questions. The first question, and I would argue as a question, should be one of our first questions every time we press in to study the scriptures, is this. What were the cultural conditions into which Paul was writing? That's a very, very important question. 
What were the cultural conditions into which Paul was writing? See, sometimes we forget that the Bible was written in a very different time to, a very, to people living in a very different culture. It was not written to Westerners living in America in 2021. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't have anything to say to us and that it doesn't apply to us, but it does mean we need to keep that in mind and remember that. So Paul is writing in a heavily patriarchal culture in which women were not educated the way that men were. And so we read this, and it can sound like this overarching silencing of women, but the, you know, and the truth is, in the first century, it would have sounded empowering, because Paul writes, a woman is to learn. We, we tend to like always focus on the back half of these two verses, and we miss that first part that was super countercultural and incredibly important. A woman is to learn. They weren't to be excluded from learning the way they had been. They were to be taught. And as should always be the case, I think everyone will agree with this, learners should not be teaching something they have not fully grasped. Agreed? Like you don't want me teaching trigonometry when I can barely do basic math. Full disclosure, I typed trigonometry in my, in my notes and spelled it wrong and had to spell check it. And it was just like, if I can't even spell it, I just, I'm that bad at math. I can't even spell the words that contribute to math. But I have no place teaching that when it's not something that I understand. And so New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, who's written upwards of 60 books and is one of the most premier New Testament scholars in America, he summarizes the overarching principle as teaching silence only for women who have not yet been taught. But that's what Paul's speaking into in 1 Timothy. Women who had not had an opportunity to be taught should not be teaching in the same way that if I haven't been taught basic math, I've got no business teaching trigonometry. I don't understand it yet. Now, the second question that we need to ask is, what is Paul referring, and I almost never hear people ask this question, what is Paul referring to when he uses the word teach? I do not allow a woman to teach. What is Paul talking about when he uses the word teach. Because what we often do is we just apply Paul's use of that word teach to all forms of public speaking in any mixed gender gathering. But the more that we press into Paul's meaning, the more we see how that grossly overapplies Paul's words. Because of what we read elsewhere in the New Testament, even from Paul, we should not read this as excluding women from teaching. For instance, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, Paul's not just addressing men there. He's addressing the entire church, men and women included. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul affirms that women will prophesy a form of public speaking in a mixed setting. In Acts 21, verse 9, we learn about the four daughters of Philip, the evangelist, and all of his daughters prophesied. Next week, we're going to see another example in Romans 16 of Paul commending a woman who instructed an influential male teacher in the early church. So all of this means Paul, Paul just cannot be referring to all public speaking, which means he must be referring to a specific kind. John Dixon, who is the senior research fellow of the Department of Ancient History at Mockery University, says Paul is using the term in a technical and thus specific sense. He defines it as this. It's carefully preserving 
and laying down for the congregation the traditions handed on by the apostles. Let me say that again. When Paul in 1 Timothy is talking about teaching, this is what he's talking about. It's the work of carefully preserving and laying down for the congregation the traditions handed on by the apostles. Remember, these churches did not have the New Testament at this time. They didn't even have like beautifully bound Old Testament. So they just did not have it at the time. All they had was the testimony of the original disciples that Jesus invested in. And so here's a very important point. It is not accurate to equate what we call preaching with what Paul calls teaching. Because when, when, when I preach, when we teach, we're just explaining and applying. What we're not doing in the same way is preserving and laying down for the congregation the traditions handed on by the apostles. We have the Bible now. That work has been done. And so while not everyone agrees on this, the more I study, the more I'm convinced that gender is not what qualifies or disqualifies someone from teaching the Bible. What matters biblically is that someone is equipped and that they are gifted by God to do so. So all this to say that Phoebe was a faithful leader, she was a benefactor, and she was an expositor in the church, and she deserves recognition for being such. So as we distill all of this down into a single big idea, here's what I think we should walk away reflecting on and meditating on. It's this. The Christian life is meant to be one of faithful investment in the mission of Jesus. The Christian life is meant to be one of faithful investment in the mission of Jesus. And Phoebe models this beautifully for us. She had gifts in the area areas of leadership and generosity and teaching, and she invested them faithfully. So the question is, are we investing the, the gifts that God has given us faithfully? You may not be a teacher. You may not be wealthy. You may not have been assigned an obvious leadership role, but I want you to know you have gifts. Some of those are natural gifts that God has entrusted to you. Some of those are spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has entrusted you specifically to help build up and edify the local church. But make no mistake, you have gifts. And so I want to close by asking just a few questions that I think will help us, I hope will help us live in light of all of this. The first question is this, are you living surrendered to Jesus? Are you living life not just did you walk an aisle at some point or raise your hand to pray a prayer, not that there's anything wrong with that, but if it ended there, that's problematic. Are you living your life surrendered to Jesus? Because there's no service with Jesus apart from surrender to him. And so before we go any further, I, I want everyone to stop and considered, consider if you are living surrendered to Jesus. Have you fixed your faith on his finished work in your place? Because what I don't want you to hear this morning or at any point in our church is that we serve and that we do things so that we will be loved and accepted and forgiven by God. We never, ever, ever serve Jesus in order to be accepted. We serve from the acceptance that he has already set upon us. And so is his will the wind directing your life? Because if not, 
the first thing for you to do is to make the decision to give him all of yourself. So second question is, are you aware of your gifts? Because some people are not. Are you aware of your gifts? If I were to ask you the ways in which that God has wired you to be a blessing to others, would you be able to answer that? Now, I know some of you well enough to know, some of you are just like super Debbie Downer on yourself and you see no good and you see no gifts in yourself. And so if that's you, if I were to ask you that and you're like, nothing, then you need to talk to someone else because your opinion is wrong. And sometimes we need other people to see things in us that we don't see in ourselves. And that's one of the reasons that God calls us to community. So are you aware of your gifts? And then finally, are you investing your gifts? Are you investing your gifts? Because the truth is sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're not intentional about using our gifts in service to Jesus. Instead, we use them exclusively to benefit ourselves. And so let's flip that and let's pour ourselves into faithful service every single day. The Christian life is meant to be one of faithful investment in the mission of Jesus. So let's follow the example of Phoebe and serve Jesus together. Let me pray for us and then we'll do some Q&A, all right? Father, we thank you again for another humbling and encouraging example in Phoebe. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you used her. We thank you that because she was faithful to her task, we have the, the book of Romans to be able to read and to learn so much about who you are and so much about how you love and care for us. And Lord, our heart and our intent is to be a people who serve you faithfully because you have served us perfectly. And so, Lord, first and foremost, I pray if there's anyone listening who has not surrendered their life to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken their heart to faith and that they would live surrendered. Secondly, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make us keenly aware of the gifts that you have entrusted to us and that you would help and empower us to live out those gifts in our church, in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhood, in the city that you've placed us in. Lord, we want to live lives that are marked by service because you have served us. Help us to live in response to that. We need your help, so we ask that you would help us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.